everybody, I'm Sass Busby, editor of Flying Solo. Welcome to our weekly podcast where we step inside the minds and lives of soloists and small business owners. If you're looking to make your business future fit, Friska Weirya has you covered. As a change management expert, Friska helps big businesses implement change so that they can face the challenges of future work. But her strategies are just as applicable to small business owners as their big business counterparts. And so she joins us today to unpack how you can prepare your business to face the future. Friska, thank you so much for joining me on the show today. Great to have you with us. Thanks for having me. My pleasure. Now, um, just for our, our listeners' benefits, can you share a little bit about your background? Like, where did your passion for change management come from? Yeah, sure. Uh, I've been in change management for a decade. And when the usual response to that is, what the heck is change management? So I help very large organizations move from A to B with minimal fuss, minimal pain, and as fast as possible. And when I say A to B, it could be changes of all shapes and sizes. It could be a merger and acquisition, or it could be the complete opposite. It could be an asset divestment. It could be implementing a whole suite of AI smarts for a very large organization, or it could be a culture change. The point is, I help organizations shift the status quo and enable them to disrupt without being disrupted internally. Um, And what piqued my interest in change management is that I was uh, in California at the time. I did my undergrad there, won a scholarship, and I thought I wanted to be a management consultant. So I really admired one of my professors. Um, So that's what I did. I followed in his footsteps. And, you know, a year or two later, I just felt really unfulfilled and really bored. It felt like it was the same project. It just looked different. And so when I came back to Australia, change management was only starting to be recognized as a discipline. And it really intrigued me, played to all my strengths. Um, And what I like about it is that each day is different because each company is different. Each change is different. Each culture is different. So it really keeps the brain firing and... um, It intrigued me enough to take a big gamble. I took a 40% pay cut to start from nothing, start as a change analyst. And I just worked my way up with unwavering dedication and laser-like focus. And since then, I've done changes of all shapes and sizes. I've worked in six of the seven continents. Um, And it's, yeah, and, you know, 10 years later, I'm still loving it. That's fantastic that you found almost your calling in a way. Mm. So you mentioned you work with uh, a lot of big businesses, but I imagine the kind of learnings that you bring to them are also things that can be applied to small businesses as well. Oh, definitely. 100%. Because what I do is a very human-centered discipline. So it doesn't matter if a company has 10,000 people or 100 people, the tools and techniques and strategies remain the same because it's all about how do you influence people to feel psychologically safe enough to do something different. How do you cultivate innovation and growth? You know, businesses of all shapes and sizes need to change because if they're not changing, then they're regressing. Yeah, that's right. They're they're either going backwards or standing still. So definitely embracing the change is something we could all kind of grab onto and and move with. But um, sometimes people still have resistance to to change. So could you kind of dive in a little bit if say I, I'm a business owner and I'm wanting to implement some change, but I'm feeling some resistance from my staff or even from my 
I don't know, my suppliers or people, uh, the businesses I deal with, what what would be some ways to kind of shift that resilient that res- resistance into something something else? Uh, first of all, it's not sometimes. People will always <laughs> resist change. <laughs> I'd be out of a job if people didn't always resist change. It's just human nature because in the past, you know, in the prehistoric era, anything new and foreign we would run away from because we associated it with danger. Well, we haven't evolved significantly since then. and But today, I would say that people resist change because they are scared of losing something, right? They fear loss. And I've broken it down into one of these six Ps, right? Power, prestige, protection, performance, pay, and position, right? Power could be, you know, this person felt really powerful because he was responsible for a budget of, I don't know, $10 million. And then with this change, it could be significantly reduced. That's what I mean by power. When I say prestige, I remember one particular project, um, managers above a certain level got their own car parking bay. And with this change involved moving to a different building with no parking. So that really hit them in in their sense of self. That's what I mean by prestige. Uh, protection could mean, you know, maybe this person was an an average performer, shall we say, and the change could be a restructure. And because of this restructure, the boss that was previously protecting this person could be moved. So that's what I mean by protection. Um, pay, pretty self-explanatory. People are scared. It means their bonuses are on the line. Uh, position, also self-explanatory, especially with the emergence of AI, the natural response is, am I going to lose my job, right? Um, And in terms of performance, it could be this particular change will make it harder or impossible to maintain or sustain a higher level of performance. You know, it could be a new performance management system, or it could be, you know, they're changing people's KPIs. So really, it's down to those six Ps. So people are scared of losing one or maybe more of them. And so the way to overcome that is to really be wary of which of these six Ps this person may be feeling under threat about. And then you really need to educate, you need to co-create, you need to involve. It's always better to have people in and then outside of the tent. Um, A lot of um, execs that I work with push back at the co-creation part because they think it's going to take longer. Like, no, I don't want to do that. You know, if we run these sessions, et cetera, it's going to blow it out by another two, three months. And my response to that is always, look, you can either spend a reasonable amount of time getting your people on the bus, or you can spend an unreasonable amount of time battling them, battling resistance to the very end. At the, at the end of the day, people value things and uh, will better support things if they've contributed in some shape or form to shaping it. Right. This is why I've got a really great example of Ferrari. Right. Ferrari has an immersive um, sort of cockpit environment where you can go to their showroom and you can customize your car with anything you want. And it's not a it's not a five minute um, experience. It actually takes hours. And I was curious and I asked one of the sales guys, I was like, what's the percentage that people actually go through with the purchase after they've done your fun, immersive, you know, AI experience here? And he said the number was like 99%. That is crazy. And he said, you'll be surprised after people have done that experience and they've created something with their own two hands, you know, before they did it, I I said to them, you know, the waiting list for this is about 18 months. And they're like, yes, 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 that's okay. But after they've done it, after they've created it, suddenly it's urgent. 
suddenly they're like, <laughs> what can you do to get it here next month? I will pay extra, blah, 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 blah. This is the exact same logic when it comes to organizational change. So give people a chance to get some skin in the game, right? People are less likely, likely to fight something they've had some involvement in. Yeah, and I imagine it's not just a one-off thing, changes like an ongoing process. You can, um, it starts with that initial, you know, consultation, but, yes. you know, businesses probably shouldn't be thinking, oh, I've, I've done this change and now that's it, we're all set. That's it's right. a matter of tuning it, fine-tuning mm-hmm. it and, and reshaping it. Oh, geez, you, you could be a change management in a previous life. <laughs> <laughs> yes, it's so true. This is where where most organizations kind of fall over. It's like they, they set a strategy in the beginning, then they never revisit the strategy, right? Because people respond to change in different ways and they move through the commitment curve at different paces. So someone may be stuck at resentment and anger for a good six months, right? Someone may accelerate very fast to commitment and adoption. But if you don't continuously check in with your stakeholders, gather feedback and finesse how you roll out and implement change, then you're not going to get those results that you're after. It is very much an, an evolutionary two-way um, process, definitely not um, set and forget. Mm. So how do you kind of embed that into the culture then so that change becomes something that is just part of operations in a way? Really, we have to encourage continuous learning. So we have to realize, like what we just said, if you're not changing, then you're regressing. See, not not everybody realizes that. Everybody wants change, but they themselves don't want to change. And (laughs) for that sort of culture change, I mean, it's not going to happen overnight at the end of the day. Um, And I always say, look, how fast you get there depends on two main variables, which is your communication how effective it is, how regular it is, how transparent, how engaging. And number two, your leaders, right? I can develop the most elegantly engineered change management strategy, but if your leaders aren't walking the talk, if their actions are not congruent with the words that they say, nothing I do is going to work. Because at the end of the day, people look to their leaders as role models to assess what's accepted around here. What's the behavior that I should amplify you know what's important to them what are they prioritizing so actions say a thousand words so definitely those two are key to focus on if you want to build change capability your leaders need to be embracing of change they need to role model it they need to talk about it they need to make it real um so those that's my advice for that Mm. so what about um you know we've mentioned you know if you're not changing then you're regressing and you know everything's really stagnant but what if I'm a business owner and I think oh you know everything's going pretty okay why why should I change well many other organizations that are now in the corporate graveyard said exactly the same thing right you don't want to be the taxi that gets ubered into oblivion you don't want to be the BlackBerry against Apple. Like all, There's always signals in the market. And really, I can't remember who said this quote. I think it was Peter Drucker. And he said, change before you have to. Right? Change before you have to. Because um, I don't know if you remember TomTom, that technology way back when? Yeah. Early yeah. stage GPS. Navigator. Yeah. Yep. That's right. Navigator. So what would have happened if, you know, ta- the taxi industry 
were serious about customer experience. They implemented TomTom navigation systems in, in all their cars. You know, they they were they focused a lot on customer service and not taking the passenger for a ride, like not literally and metaphorically and financially. Would there be a need for Ubers? Like Uber was born out of a great dissatisfaction from the status quo. So you don't want to wait until you get until you get to that point. Mm. So by that token, then, should we also be maybe looking to our customers when we're thinking about implementing change as to what might be next for our business? I think um, preempting customers' needs and stress testing your different approaches and methodologies with them is definitely time not wasted. Um, that's if you're a um, consumer brand. So in, in the organizations that I've worked with, um, they're mostly in mining, engineering, and oil and gas. And, and in that regard, for example, one of them is one of Australia's largest engineering companies. I'm helping them race, win the race against net zero. And that they're changing because of their client needs. Like suddenly it's important to know about your carbon emissions. It's important that you're using um, recyclable materials. So, you know, they're playing a little bit of a catch up, but if they were kind of open to signals from the market and had two-way um, communication approaches to make sure that they were aware of the trend so they can change before they have to, they would perhaps be a lot more in front than their competitors. Hmm. And um, their customers would probably be a lot more happier as well. 100%. 100%. Yeah. yeah. So could you kind of guide us a little bit into the key components that might go into successful change, like planning a, a successful change management program if I'm a small business owner? Uh, if you're trying to get people on board with a, with a change, with a transformation in your organisation, the first step would be absolute clarity on what is and what isn't changing. Like in this post-COVID world where it seems like every week uh, there's a new AI thing to get your head around or there's a new system being upgraded, this creates change fatigue and this creates resistance. So if you're not clear on what is and what isn't changing, employees will automatically dig their heels in and buckle up and push against it because we are so time poor um, but yet the pressure to achieve results has never been higher than before. It also hasn't helped that um, our surge capacity has been tapped. So our ability to absorb information today versus two years ago versus pre-COVID is two and a half times less than pre-pandemic levels. Wow, and really? It's crazy. I read this stat in the Australian Institute of Management, and it's because we lived for two years in this constant state of emergency so those that surge capacity, we usually tap into that when, when there's some sort of survival survival mode. But because it's been that way for so long, we actually haven't recuperated since then. And that's why when it comes to rolling out big changes in an organisation, we really have to move to more bite-sized incremental shifts. So people don't get bombarded. They don't get overwhelmed uh, because when people get overwhelmed, they just glaze over and they refuse to take in anything new. Um the second point is, it sounds really obvious, but you'll be surprised how many leaders don't do this, is that communication has to be two-way, right? It's not just you telling people, you actually have to do some listening and get feedback from them on how, how this is impacting their lives. And there's a great marketing um, term 
or, or slogan where it says you have to keep repeating something for seven to 12 times or something. It's actually a lot more than that. You actually have to keep saying the same thing, but in slightly different ways. So I don't mean sending the exact same email 20 times, but it's all about layering. It's all about building that comprehension and that understanding. And you'll know it sunk in when your own key messages are starting to be parroted back at you, right? Because the first time you say something, people aren't really listening. They're thinking about, you know, what time do I have to pick up the kids from school? What am I going to make for dinner? Do I need to do some dry cleaning? Blah, blah, blah. And it's only through this repetition that we get this comprehension. Um, I think we also have to think about expectation management and support. You know, when we when we first learned to ride a bike, for example, well, I don't know about you, but I didn't go downhill on two wheels straight away. I had my training wheels on. I had to get used to the feel and the mechanism of putting my feet on the pedals and circling that. Same with employees, right? You can't expect them to change overnight. So there needs to be some sort of training, some resources to help them adapt, whether it's adapting to new processes, systems, or tools. So ongoing support and coaching is, is, is needed to get people to adopt. And last but not least, be realistic about the duration and the impact of the changes. So be honest and transparent about what are these potential challenges and really make sure that there's a mechanism that it allows employees to make sure that the concerns are being heard by management. And last but not least, I'd say celebrate the wins, no matter how small, because progress um, can boost morale and motivation like wildfire. It could be as simple as crossing off the days that the project has been going, or it could be, you know, a small pilot um, was really, really successful. So start small, prove the wins, prove the benefits, and that will whet the appetite for bigger and more change down the line. Yeah, I think that celebrating the wins part is is something that is really essential, but quite often forgotten. Mm. Also in terms of the, uh, you mentioned, you know, the importance of leadership in transformation and change Mm. so how much does that also relate to culture I mean huge the the leader sets the culture right so I think a lot of organizations nowadays claim innovation as one of their values like everybody's saying they're innovative but the rate of innovation is hampered to the extent of the rate that people feel psychologically safe and so creating an environment where people feel safe to express their concerns their doubts their fears about the changes, it's its critical, right? So you can't blow people's heads off for failing because that's not innovating, right? You need to you need to reward people, not just for, for, for doing something new when it works, but for trying, right? And so often we find that there's a massive disconnect and there's a big misalignment between what the organization says is important and how they reward and recognize their people and, and what the culture's like. Uh, so I think it's Atlassian. Um, they have something called uh, F-Up Fridays where they literally celebrate F-Ups <laughs> every Friday. So things that didn't work, that like kind of fell in a blaze of glory, but, but they've sort of flipped it on its head. Like, yes, it didn't work, but this is what I learned from it right? That's the key. This is what I learned from it. It's it's not a failing. It's a learning. It may have failed, but you walked away with a learning from it. So if organizations want to innovate, want to change and hold this as a core value, they need to create a culture that is very tolerant and rewards failing. And so many don't do that. 
um, because, I mean, lots of reasons, but we're not, they're not set up that way, right? Lots of sea levels, they're remunerated against a really good share price, you know, profit margins. There's nothing in there about learning from failure. Hmm. So unless this changes systemically, we're going to struggle to actually embed this as a core cultural trait. Yeah, I think it's it's probably more prevalent in um, startup culture and mm. less so in big corporates. And even though small businesses can be quite agile, I think probably less so in them as well, just simply because they can be risk averse because there's so much for them to lose, I think, in a way. Mm. I think small businesses often think, oh, instigating a change or a transformation I, I have to be scared of that. <laughs> <laughs> and yes, like anything, if if you hadn't haven't done it before, then it can be scary for sure. And that's where you seek, you know, expert support. You upskill yourself on what's worked and what hasn't worked. You test your ideas. So as much as possible, you minimize the rate of failure by kind of preventing that. Mm. You also talk about this concept of being future fit. So can you kind of explain to our listeners what you mean by future fit? So there's a really great line by Alvin Toffler um, and it says the illiterate of the future will not be those that cannot read or write, but those that cannot learn, relearn and unlearn. And so to build our future fitness muscles, it's not just about taking on information, taking on information or taking on learnings. It's about unlearning behaviors that no longer serve us because, and as adults, uh, let, let alone not alone adults, even children, we all walk walk around with behaviors that no longer serve us. It could be, I don't know, smoking, or it could be the tendency to withdraw when we feel that we're being attacked emotionally. So whatever these are, if we want to become future fit, we need to systematically remove these things that no longer serve us and continuously add behaviors, mindsets, uh, processes, methodologies that do. So how can we start on that change? How do we embark on making ourselves more future fit, so recognising what they are to begin with? Recognising what they are, definitely, and and thinking about, okay, if, if I'm here and this is my goal, you know, five years from now, what behaviours do I need to do to lead to that? And conversely, the opposite, if that's where I want to go, what should I stop doing right now to make sure I get there? in as good a shape as possible. So really it's it's about a very honest assessment of where you are today, getting real with what your objectives and your goals are and, and working backwards from there. What's going to get me there and what's not going to get me there? And this is a relevant process that you can run for yourself as an individual and for your business. Mm. So looking ahead, um, are you seeing any particular trends or challenges uh, for the organisations that you're working with that might also apply to small business? Uh, I would say it's sequencing of necessary changes in line with budget. So, you know, if, if, if money was no object, you'd, you'd get this certification, you'd re-engineer processes here, you'd hire, you know, the A-team from all around the world, but that's not the reality that we live in. So what a lot of organizations often fall over is that they green light too many things. They may say, yep, we're doing these nine things. And guess what? Nearly all of them fail miserably. So instead of doing, you know, nine things, just focus on the top 
two or three and brutally execute and be ruthless with making sure that they go well. So really making clear on what's really going to shift the needle, what's really going to help you leap forward that much longer, that much faster and getting serious about that. Mm. Thank you so much. That's great advice. It's been such a pleasure having you on the show today. Um, Any final words for our listeners? Thank you for having me. And if anyone's interested in chatting more about change capability on how they can build their organization's future fitness, then you can reach out to me either on LinkedIn or at freshbyfriska.com. Thank you. Thank you so much, Friska. Enjoy the rest of your day. Thank you.